Well, hey, Harvest, good morning. How we doing? Thank you guys for spending part of your holiday weekend with us. I know we are kind of uh, full-blown summer now as we get into July here in Western Michigan. I know this is a busy time of life for a lot of you with family and friends and vacation and just enjoying the outdoors. I hope you know at Harvest, uh, we're not taking the summer off. And uh, last week, our staff worked very, very hard at Vertical Adventures. You saw the recap video as it relates to that. Um, we're not doing um, real light preaching this summer. Have you guys kind of noticed that? Like two weeks ago, I was teaching on anxiety. Last week, Taylor was teaching on grief and lament. So we're not trying to take the summer off and just throw fluff at you. So I just felt for the 4th of July, we go with a little bit of a lighter topic. Today, we're going to talk on forgiveness, okay? <laughs> because nobody in this room obviously struggles with that topic. It's interesting this week, one of our pastors, Brian Smoots, he goes, hey, you're preaching on forgiveness. This was like Tuesday. And um, I'm like, yeah, I'm preaching on forgiveness this week. He goes, good, I got a book I want you to read. I'm like, shoot me. Like, I don't want to read another book on forgiveness. Just by the way, if you Google or if you go on Amazon and just put in the search books on forgiveness, there's like 80,000 books on forgiveness. If you go to Christian book distributors, there's like 5,000 books on forgiveness. It's hard to name a major Christian author who hasn't written a book on forgiveness. So I, I wasn't overly enthusiastic about Brian's suggestion. And then I felt bad about it on Thursday. So I read the book. Um, it was a good book, actually. Got me thinking on a lot of different things. I've taught on this topic of forgiveness, I would argue, more than any other topic that I've spoken on at this church. I've spoken on it in different sermons as we've looked at this is harvest and distinctives of who we want to be and how we want to behave. I've taught on it in a Christian disciplines study. I've taught on it in frequently asked questions on Tuesday nights in one of our electives. We're teaching on it in a change series as part of our marriage conference that Kristen and I have done. We have a whole session on forgiveness. This is a topic that I have spent a lot of time teaching on. More than any other context, I've taught about it in the counseling room. Because very seldom do you get into a core counseling issue where this problem or this issue of forgiveness doesn't come up. Be it a marriage context, a, a family, a relational, a work, you, you run into this question, how do I trust someone who's proven to be untrustworthy? Or maybe better than just how do I trust someone, why would I trust someone who's proven to be untrustworthy? And amidst all of the clatter and all of the clutter of tens of thousands of books written on the topic of forgiveness, I'm afraid sometimes what gets lost as we think about forgiveness and what it means and how we apply it, how about we just look at the words of Jesus? Like he's got some very direct things to say on the topic of forgiveness, and he doesn't just say them, he illustrates them with parables. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at two passages, Matthew 18. There's going to be ushers coming down the rows. They've got Bibles. Grab a Bible if you need one. Just raise your hand. They'd be glad to give you one. We're going to be in Matthew 18 looking at a parable Jesus gives related to forgiveness, and then we're going to jump over to Luke 17 on a lesser known but also very important parable that he gives as it relates to forgiveness. The big idea this morning is simply this. There are no enduring relationships without forgiveness. There are no enduring relationships without forgiveness. Horizontally, person to person, there are no enduring relationships without forgiveness. Vertically, 
our relationship with God. There is no relationship vertically without forgiveness. Matthew 18, I'm going to pick it up in verse 21. This is going to be a familiar parable to you of the two that I'm teaching today. This will be the more familiar of the two. It has to deal, or it's often called the parable of the unforgiving servant. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up, to, came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I will forgive him? As many as seven times. So, so Peter's got a question. He says, how often will my brother sin against me? That word sin, some translations say offense. It's an action that creates a debt, definitely to God and quite often to another person. So Peter asks the question, how often do I have to forgive? That's what he asked. We don't know why he asked. Is it possible that Peter had somebody specific in mind when he went to Jesus? Text doesn't tell us. If I had to guess, I think he was talking about John. That guy could be annoying. He was always referring to himself in the third person, always talking about himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. I'm thinking it was John. I can't prove it. It's my guess. I don't know if Peter had someone specific in mind, but to make this applicable to us this morning, as we talk about forgiveness, do me a favor, get a face at the front of your mind. Who is it that you are struggling to forgive? Who is that annoying person that you constantly have to forgive? You understand that most of us in our lives are going to have people that we're going to need to forgive over and over again. You get that, right? Does everybody kind of get that? Family, neighbors, peers at work, people we go to church with, people in our small group, like... If you don't understand this concept that you're going to have to forgive some people over and over again, I've got some people I want to introduce you to, okay? If you're lacking for offense, if you're needing some help in exercising this ability to forgive, there's a lot of people out there. So we go forward. It says this in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I say to you not seven times, but 70 times seven. I don't think it's an actual count. Some translations say 77 times. I think 70 times 7 or 490 is the better answer. But what Jesus was saying was, no, you've got to keep forgiving over and over and over again. In the Old Testament, it was kind of like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that if somebody hurts you, that you've got to get even. By the time we get to the New Testament, the scribes and the rabbis of Jesus' day were saying, no, you forgive someone at least three times. But after three times, man, that's kind of like strike out. You're done. Peter says, well, if the rabbis say three and Jesus seems to be upping the ante on a lot of things, I'm going to go with what the rabbis say and I'm going to double it, add one. He's got to be impressed with seven. And Jesus is like, uh, no, 70 times seven. Jesus begins a parable in verse 23. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants, plural, not servants, servants. So this king sits down. It's not one person that owes him money or it's not one person that is in debt. It's servants. It's multiple borrowers. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now I've got to help you with the math there because that's a, that's a currency, 10,000 talents. One talent would be equal to 20 years wages for an average hourly laborer. So let's put this into kind of our currency today. Assuming somebody made $20 an hour, 
He worked 40 hours a week. He worked 50 hours a year. 20 years of wages times 10,000 would be 8 billion. This is not a small debt. This is like Bernie Madoff stuff. But let's not think about it from the standpoint right now of what this servant owes. Let's think about it who the king who lent this much money. Like, and he's got multiple servants. Like, I don't know how you get $8 billion in debt to your king. Like, I don't, I don't understand that. I think we can read from the passage or assume from the passage, the king has a significant amount of wealth. Would you agree? That one guy could fall $8 billion into debt. And the king is trying to settle this account. It says this in verse 25. And since he could not pay, obviously... His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So I don't think I have to develop this concept very deeply. Debt can be a cruel master. Many would agree. And so the point that I would make here is because of this debt, because of this $8 billion, the king says, hey, you can't pay. You're going to work it off. And because you can't work that off alone, I'm going to take your wife and she's going to work it off. And I'm going to take your kids, and they're going to work it off. And I'm basically going to take everything that you own and work it off. If you take him, his wife, his kids, how long do they have to work to pay off $8 billion? Let's just say you can't work it off. It's too great a debt. It says this. It says in verse 26, So the servant fell to his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Remember that phrase. It's going to come up again. It says in verse 27, and out of pity for him. So, so out of pity for this slave that owes $8 billion. I think there's a lot better motivations for forgiveness. We'll get to those later. But it says out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. How would you feel at that moment if you were the servant? $8 billion gone. It's interesting, it says, but when that same servant went out, we don't know how much time had passed, but it sounds fairly quickly, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a denarii is one day's wage. So that's a hundred days worth of wages. Again, taking a $20 an hour, that relates about 16000 so he had just been forgiven $8 billion. He runs into another dude that owes him 16000 Not an insignificant amount by any means. It says he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. Okay, question. Does anybody have a problem with that response? Like, does that just offend or annoy anybody? God has a problem with it. Verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Heard that phrase before? He refused, verse 30, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Pretty clear parable, what Jesus is teaching. Do you think the disciples were able to connect the dots? 
Are, are we able to connect the dots? Am, am I able to connect the dots as it relates to forgiveness? Just some implications from this parable. Forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. If you've experienced forgiveness, your natural response to be, should be to be a forgiving person. The flip of side of that is also true. Unforgiving people are unforgiven. For a follower of Jesus to be unwilling to forgive is hypocrisy. And I don't want you to miss this in verse 35. It says this. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart, the issue of whether you forgive has much more to do with your heart condition than it does with you, another person, or what that offense was. Forgiven people forgive. For a follower of Jesus Christ not to forgive is hypocrisy. A parable is meant to convey one basic truth. I think that's pretty clear in this text what that is. Flip over if you have your Bibles, just a couple books to Luke 17. Luke 17, another parable on forgiveness. It's not as well known as the unforgiving servant. Luke 17 starts in verse 1. Jesus is talking to his disciples. And in verse 3 of Luke 17, it says this. It says, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Okay, just a couple things here. If someone sins against you, comes to you and says, I need your forgiveness, and you forgive him, and then he does it again and asks forgiveness, and you forgive him, and he does it again, and he asks forgiveness, and you forgive him, and he does it seven times in a day. First of all, how annoying does that get to be? Secondly, is there a lot of time between offenses to ask to see the fruit of his repentance? to make a judgment of whether there's been real heart change? If, if somebody takes money from me at 9 a.m. and then says, will you forgive me? And I take the money back and then he steals from me again at 10 a.m. and at 11 a.m. and at 2 p.m., what are the odds I'm going to leave my wallet laying out at 4 p.m.? I'm going to start having some serious doubts about this guy. Wouldn't you agree? But nowhere in this parable does Jesus suggest to the disciples, hey, quit being idiots. Quit exposing yourself. Quit allowing yourself to get hurt. Quit allowing yourself to be taken advantage of. There's no time for fruit. The command is clear. If he comes and he seeks repentance, you forgive him. And the word there is you must forgive him. The idea that you would have to forgive someone seven times in the day applies that there's been some reestablishment of a relationship. There's been some level of trust to expose yourself to be sinned against seven times. By the way, what Jesus is suggesting in this parable is so radical, so difficult to deal with that the disciples struggle with it. Look at how the disciples respond. They say in verse five, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Verse 6, and the Lord said, if you had the faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So here's what Jesus did. The disciples go, increase our faith. This is too hard. And Jesus said, it's not a faith thing. I'm not asking you to have a great deal of faith. You can have the tiniest amount of faith and accomplish what I'm asking you to do because it's not a faith thing. It's an obedience thing. It's a choice. 
And then he illustrates what he's just taught. Verse 7, this is the parable no one wants to talk about. Jesus says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing and keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank his servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done what you were commanded, say, you are unworthy servants. You've only done what was your duty. Now there's a delightful parable, wouldn't you agree? Let me, let me explain what that parable is clearly teaching. And if you're keeping notes under the first kind of topic, why forgive? Here's the first reason it's clear in this parable. Because we're commanded to forgive. Because we're commanded to forgive. Jesus has just said, if he seeks repentance and asks forgiveness, you must forgive him. The parable illustrates that Jesus is our master that we are slaves. His appeal to us for us to be forgiving people is not based off our sonship, our family relationship with Jesus. It is based off the fact that we are bond slaves, we were bought with a price, and we are told by our master that we are required to forgive. Forgiveness does not depend on fruit. You don't have to see a change of heart in the person that's asking for forgiveness. You can't see fruit if you're forgiving seven times a day. It's not based off the amount of faith that you have. The disciples were rebuked for their comment, increase our faith. And it's not based off feelings. Trust me, if you were the servant that worked in the field all day and you came in, the last thing you feel like doing is serving your master dinner before you eat. So Jesus is explaining the decision, the choice that you make is based because God commanded you. It's not based off fruit, it's not based off faith, and it's not based off feelings. God has commanded. It's not optional. And by the way, as you're thinking and you've got that face in front of you and you're saying this is really hard, I would argue that it's often not even logical to choose to forgive. Here's a second reason why we choose to forgive. God's wrath. God's wrath this command to forgive, it's actually more than a command, it's a mandate. And the difference between a command and a mandate is this. A mandate is when action is demanded of another with a specific consequence given for noncompliance. The Bible's very, very clear. You must forgive, and if you do not forgive, then this. It's interesting. How many of you guys, if I needed you to, could quote the Lord's Prayer? Can anybody quote the Lord's Prayer? Okay, you raised your hand. It's Rob, right? Okay, so quote the Lord's Prayer. Don't put it on the screen. You guys did that last night. That was cheating, okay? So what I know is that there's much more to it than what I I'm not asking you to expound on the Lord's Prayer. I'm just asking you to quote the Lord's Prayer. Can you give, can you give it to me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Good King James. Keep going. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. As it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Perfect. Keep going. You're near the end. This is where the guy last night got stuck. Go ahead. Wife, be ready. Lead us not, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's it. Okay, question. Is that prayer in the Bible? Yes. 
Matthew 6, right? That's what he teaches. But it's interesting, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever is not in the original most reliable manuscripts. It, it ends, it lead us on to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Go ahead and look at the passage. That's the progression of the passage. Somewhere along the line, a, a well-meaning scribe in some manuscripts probably took a doxology that he found in Chronicles and say this would be a good way to button up Jesus' prayer. Not a great idea. But if we read through the text, look what flows right out of the Lord's prayer. The next thing that you see is this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Okay, as it relates to forgiveness, I don't want you to miss this. This is important. Jesus is saying, do this or else. And you're all like, well, I don't think Jesus would actually threaten us. Uh, you are incorrect. That's exactly what he is doing. And he says it directly in other passages. In Mark eleven twenty five, Jesus instructs, whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Luke six thirty seven. judge not, you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive, you will not be forgiven. Here's what he's saying. If you refuse to choose to forgive, you will incur God's wrath. And some of you are like, well, no, no, no. I read this book. It was called Love Wins. And, and hell and wrath, and that's just kind of a construct. Incorrect. Jesus' words are very clear on this topic. Let me say this as clearly as I possibly can. Every habitual, unforgiving person remains unforgiven by God and is not at this moment a citizen of heaven. If, if you are struggling with forgiveness, if you are trying to forgive but you're struggling and the bitterness sometimes overwhelms but you try and you fail and you try and you fall short, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the person who has a settled resolve in their heart that says, I refuse to forgive. Warning, Jesus is very close or very clear on this. If you say, I refuse to forgive, Jesus has given clear warning. If that's you and you're going to a barbecue on the 4th of July, chew carefully. You want to resolve this. Here's a third reason that we forgive, and I think this is the most important because of God's forgiveness. In both of these parables, what is in the view of the disciples is that they have been forgiven much. C.S. Lewis says it this way, to be a Christian means to forgive the unexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. In the Lord's Prayer, the foundation for us asking for God's forgiveness is our willingness to forgive other people. The idea that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, being forgiven the great debt that we have been forgiven, and then refusing to forgive, we don't understand the depths of our sin. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Ephesians 4, 1, 4, 31, 32. This Colossians passage and the Ephesians passage, in both books, they've just laid out the glorious 
good news of our salvation and everything that is ours in Christ. And then you get to the section in Colossians and Ephesians where it says, quit acting this way, put that off and act this way, put this on. This is how Christians are to behave. And in Ephesians 4.31, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I'm just going to be really honest with you. It's hard for me to teach forgiveness to people who aren't saved. They don't have a point of reference. If I'm in a counseling room and the person is an unbeliever, to explain the concept that you would forgive someone, that you would release that offense, it's very, very hard for them to grasp because they haven't experienced that kind of forgiveness for themselves. Forgiveness is the antidote, according to Ephesians 4, for bitterness, for wrath, for anger, for clamor, for slander and malice. The antidote, if you struggle with those things, forgiveness. Now, I feel like I have to address your inner lawyer. Have you been hearing from him so far this morning? As you've got that face in front of you and you're considering your specific circumstance, you've got a lawyer arguing in your ear on why this doesn't apply to you. Let me give five reasons why we don't forgive. Here's the first one. The hurt is too big. The hurt is too big. I know some stories in this room. I surely don't know all. It would be naive for me to imagine that there aren't people here that have struggled with real hurt, real betrayal, real injury. That is very, very difficult to forgive. I get it. I'm not naive to that. I don't know maybe your story. I'm dealing with my own stuff, okay? The problem is the parable of the unforgiving servant removes our argument that the debt or the hurt is too big. We've been forgiven the eight billion. That, that is meant to relate to our sin and our offenses. The hurt is too big. Jesus went to the cross to forgive our sins. He paid a heavy price. Here's the second argument that we will make. I can't forgive. I'll just let time heal. How's that going? Time heals nothing. Time heals nothing. You will run into that person. You'll run into them in Myers, and all of a sudden the entire fence will come rushing back to your mind. Time heals nothing. Time is a poor excuse for not making the choice to forgive. Here's a third thing we sometimes say, I cannot forgive because I cannot forget. I cannot forgive because I'm not able to forget. And here's what I would say to that. That's just plain stupid. You can't forget until you forgive. The, the definition of forgiveness is releasing the offense, letting go of it. If we continue to hold on to the offense, if we don't forgive, how in the world are we able to forget? Hey, just a question, by the way, as it relates to our sin, does God forget our sin? Okay, I got a really muddy response. Does God forget our sin? Okay, who votes yes? Okay, who votes no? Okay, so if we're interpreting by majority, which is a really bad plan, the yeses seem to be winning. Let's look at scripture because there's some great defense on your guys' half. Hebrews 8.12 says, I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Isaiah 43.25 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. So clear, God forgets our sins. Question, 
Is God all-knowing? How does an all-knowing person forget? Yeah, but the, the scripture's clear. I, I think the best way that I can resolve that paradox for you is God never counts our sin against us. When he thinks of us, he thinks of us without counting that sin against our account. Now, we could argue whether God can forget, but here's what I know. We're really bad at forgetting as humans. Would you agree? Forgiveness requires that we don't count that offense against the person's account. Psalm 103 verse 11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The goal, if we're going to forgive like Christ forgave us, is to take that offense, even if it's difficult to forget, and say, I will not bring that to mind when I think of this person. Here's a fourth. I will forgive when they seek forgiveness. I will forgive when they seek forgiveness. And we can point right back to the passage that I read to you in Luke 17. It says, if he repents, you must forgive him. There's a qualifier. If he repents, there you must forgive him. But I'm going to be really honest with you. There's multiple places where Jesus, Paul, Peter teach on forgiveness. This is the one that has the qualifier. And when you look at the broad teaching of Jesus Christ as it relates to forgiveness and the rest of the New Testament, the idea that we would let the one define the many rather than the many define the one, I'm not sure that makes great sense. You must forgive if they repent. What if they don't repent? Forgiveness is still required. Now, now I got to be really clear on this because I don't want to confuse you. Though forgiveness is always required, there are times, there are seasons, there are circumstances where restoration of that relationship are difficult, if not impossible, where the relationship cannot be restored. When the accuser is accusing, when the rebel, rebellious is rebelling, when the attacker is attacking, when the addict is addicting... There are seasons where you want to forgive, you, do, you choose to forgive, but restoring the relationship in that season is not possible. And I can give biblical proof to this. David, has it related to his relationship with Saul? There was a season that after David had been anointed to be king that Saul got very angry at David, was chasing him through the wilderness, and there were moments where David wanted to reestablish that relationship. Saul would not have it. So reconciliation was impossible. If you look at Jesus' teaching on the prodigal son, the father was ready to forgive. He'd chosen to forgive, but reconciliation was impossible until the son returned. There will be seasons, sadly, in a broken world where though we choose to forgive, the ability to have full restoration may, de may be delayed. Sometimes, there are conditions to put on your reestablishing of that relationship that make reconciliation nearly impossible. In order to reconcile, you have to restate reality that you are forced to lack integrity, that you have to pretend that something is true or something is healthy when it is not. The, the fact that the relationship may not be able to be restored at that moment does not remove the mandate that we are called to forgive because the call to forgive really has nothing to do with the horizontal relationship. It has everything to do with the vertical command of our king and our savior. 
Romans 12, verse 18 says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Then in verse 19, it says, beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So, so we all, when we think of vengeance, we think about that servant choking his fellow servants for the 18 or 16 grand that he owed him, right? Do you know that vengeance can also just be insane? I'm done with you. You're canceled. Just a different form of vengeance. Our culture is so good at inventing new forms of vengeance. Sometimes it's active retaliation. Sometimes it's passive withdrawal. Here's a fifth one. If I forgive, they will hurt me again. It's probably true. In many cases, if you choose to forgive, you're opening yourself up to the risk that you'll be hurt again. The logic would be that if this, this bitterness, this, this offense against you, it's like a weight that you're carrying around. You choose to forgive because if they're going to do it again, you don't want to be carrying double the weight. Get rid of the first one first, so if it happens again, you're only carrying that weight, and then you can forgive again, and you don't want an accumulation of these weights because it will consume you. How do we forgive? We choose to forgive. There was a, a woman by the name of Corrie Tinboom. Do some of you know that name? Okay, she was, lived during the Holocaust. Her and her family uh, spent much of their time in World War II uh, shielding Jews and transporting Jews out of the reach of the Nazi regime, protecting them during the Holocaust. The cost for doing that, she was eventually imprisoned, put in a concentration camp, and, and endured atrocity, always being a light for Jesus. She said this, she said, forgiveness is an act of the will. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Again, this idea to forgive, it's to, to send, to leave, to lay it aside. It's the decision to release the person from the obligation that resulted when they injured you. Never allow yourself to think that forgiveness is anything but a choice. When, when the slave came to his fellow slave that owed 18,000 and said, have pity on me. The slave who'd just been forgiven, the response in Matthew 18, verse 30 is this. He refused. He made a choice. In that moment, he had a choice that could be made. Never think of forgiveness as anything but a choice. And he chose, I will not forgive. That's where he set his mind. That's what started the spiral towards his own judgment. How do we forgive? We choose to forgive. There's two ways that we can forgive. Here's the first one. Let love cover it. Let love cover it. I'm not talking about denial. I'm not talking about not dealing with the sin. I'm saying that you can choose to let love cover it. In church, here would be something that I would really encourage you in. Get really, really good at letting love cover the smaller sins and mistakes and issues with other people. Just let love cover it. I've been in that counseling room where one spouse has decided not to think well of the other spouse. They have literally set their minds. Instead of thinking the best, they're always thinking the worst. And I've been in the room you don't know how that person has treated me. Help me understand. Glad that you asked. 
I've kept a record. Here's a spiral-bound folder of the offenses listed in our marriage. It's chronological. Boom. You've kept a list? That's like a whole notebook. Oh, that's just years one through four. Serious? Like, like love can't cover some of this stuff? You got to get good at letting love cover the smaller things. You understand that we're all broken people trying to get along, right? There's no enduring relationships without forgiveness. Your spouse, your friend, there are going to be seasons where they let you down. You understand that you've let them down as well. Like you get that that works both ways. Do you know who's really, really good at letting love cover things? My wife. Do you know what made her good? Practice. 40 years. Minor <laughs> things. Small annoyances. I'm really good at it. Anything from the cold foot on her leg when we go to bed. The minors. 40 years. Enduring relationships. Forgiveness. Let love cover the smaller things. When the offense cannot be covered in love. Let me give you some verses for that before I move on. Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 19, 11, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 17, 9. Love prospers when a fault is forgiven, but dwelling on it separates close friends. We can let love cover it. Here's a second. Commit to the process. If you can't get rid of the offense, if it's too big, if you can't roll it off, give it to God. Give it to God. Because of the wound, because of the devil level of pain involved in that hurt that you're struggling to forgive, you have to commit to a process. And in committing to the process, you're making a covenant. You're agreeing to these three things. One, that you won't continue to bring it up to the other person. That you're not going to continue to throw that offense. The idea of forgiveness is you remove it from that person's account. You won't bring it up to that person again. You won't bring it up to others when you talk about that person. This isn't going to be a common theme. It's not going to be something that you begin to allow your life to orbit around. You release it. You let it go. You don't talk about it to that person. You don't talk about it to others. And then that really hard one, you don't talk about it to yourself. And when you're struggling in your decision to forgive, when you're struggling in the process, you return right back to the moment of crisis. And you make the choice again and again. I'm choosing to forgive. I'm choosing to forgive. I'm not going to bring it up to myself. I'm not going to bring it up to others. I'm not going to bring it up to the person. And you continue in that process. And you replace that spiral of bitterness and negative thinking with setting your mind on the things of Christ. We were struggling to forgive something in a, in a difficult season. And it was really funny. My wife just started memorizing scripture. A specific psalm. And what would happen is when the bitterness started to infiltrate her mind, she would go right back and start quoting the psalm. She got really good at memorizing. You guys are like, we're old, man. We can't memorize anymore. I'm like, I know. I get it. Hey, start memorizing in spite of forgiveness and bitterness. And, and when your mind goes to the bad places, be able to focus your mind on different things. Get that tool in your toolbox. And here's a third thing. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. It's interesting. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, 
I think that's a badly named parable. I think that parable should actually be named the parable of the incredibly garishous king. And too often we look at that and we look at his response to the servant and we look at the debts and we look at all of these things. Can we just back it up for a minute? A king forgave $8 billion. That tells us quite a bit about that king. One, immense resources. Two, an immense ability to show mercy and grace. And you can make any counter argument or defense of why you won't forgive and that defense will wither when you focus what Christ did on your behalf. See, here's the hard part about forgiveness. The, the debt that was incurred when you were injured, when, the, when that pain was caused, it doesn't magically disappear. When we sinned against God, that sin didn't just magically disappear. Jesus had to take the weight of our sin. He took it on himself when he went to the cross. He actually paid the price. When you choose to forgive, you are taking the weight of that offense and you are saying the other person doesn't have to bear it. I'll actually bear the weight. How in the world can you do that? Because you take that weight and you offload it to Jesus in gratitude for what he did. I can't figure out fireworks this year. I think they happened last night in Grand Haven. Is that true? Why we have fireworks on the first, I don't understand, but I think we did. And the reason I know is because I was trying to go to sleep, quite honestly. I live downtown. Why do we shoot off fireworks on the fourth? Like why fireworks? Well, I, I think the idea or the concept behind it is you shoot off a little explosive and somehow that explosive is to remind you of the fact that there were bombs fired at one point and cannons fired to earn our freedom. I think there's that connection that is being made with fireworks in the 4th of July. When we choose to forgive, that's us being willing to celebrate. Our forgiveness is but a small firework in response and gratitude for the battle that Jesus won and was willing to die for on our behalf. Fourth of July is all about forgiveness. It's, I mean, it's all about freedom. I'm talking on forgiveness. I'm trying to get you to freedom from bitterness, from wrath, from malice and the things that consume you. Make a choice. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for people that would take time out of their uh, busy weekends and busy lives in the summer to hear your word proclaimed. Father, give us courage to forgive. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.